Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to experts to explore plant-based practices and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with doctors, dietitians, athletes, and various fields to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by Dr. Tila Johnson, and we are chatting about the intersection of health, nutrition, and the climate. Dr. Tila Johnson is a hospitalist and emergency room physician with a keen interest in the intersection of health, nutrition, and the climate, and how they relate to equity issues. Through her work as a member of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment Agri-Food Working Group, and as a board director of the climate policy think tank called Canadians for Responsible Food Policy, she brings to bear the extensive scientific evidence on how a transition to a plant-based food system can prevent and treat chronic disease and simultaneously curtail the most detrimental greenhouse gas emissions that are propelling the climate crisis, while also giving voice and restoration to groups systematically oppressed across these intersecting realms. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. To start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to where you are today? Well, I guess sort of from a environmental racism perspective, it sort of started out with my own journey towards recognizing one of the best ways that we can all work towards sort of mitigating this climate catastrophe we're in, you know? So I started out as a small child being really interested in sort of community gardens and recycling and all those things. I was lucky that I went to a public school where they sort of emphasized that. And I'd always go home and be like, mom, we need to recycle. Or if, you know, someone put something in the garbage that could go in the green bin, make sure to like highlight that. And then somehow I stumbled upon the... Netflix movie Cowspiracy in 2019. And after sort of living a whole life considering myself to be an environmentalist, this movie, even though I do understand that it had some uh, factual errors, um, sort of illuminated for me that one of the greatest ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint would be to uh, transition to a plant-based diet. And you know, I remember one of the examples that they gave where they were talking about, you know, uh, low, low flow um, shower heads and how that does save, you know, X number of liters, like five to 10 liters of water or something like that per month. But then demonstrated that one hamburger leads to, you know, thousands of liters of water. So you could have a much greater impact by focusing on what you eat. And so almost immediately I decided, you know, as an environmentalist, if I truly believe sort of this data that I'm seeing, and since then I've actually had the privilege and um, interest in in looking at all the sort of climate related data related to agriculture, and I do see that this is factual, then I need to, I need to make that switch. And so of course, once you kind of bring that lens into your, into your life, I started to see all the other areas besides the environment where plant-based eating was so beneficial. And in my work as a physician, I see people who are suffering with the sort of end stages of metabolic disease. Um, the unit that I work on has a lot of people who have um, amputations of their limbs, you know, toes, feet, legs, sometimes fingers, related to peripheral vascular disease or non-healing diabetic ulcers. And sort of the 
element of how our food can help with that as well, in addition to climate, started to really loom large for me. And I started to look into that more. I started talking to all my patients about the Canada Food Guide, which is now plant-based, and hearing their feedback and their concerns about having access to these types of whole plant foods, you know, or describing that like what's close to them, you know, that doesn't require multiple bus trips on transit is sort of a corner store or fast food place. Um, and also having some concerns about the price of food, you know, and so given that most of my patients come from racialized backgrounds, I started to wonder about equity in the environmental area, also the health area, and looking more into the underpinnings of all of that. Like once you pull a little thread of like environmental racism or inequity, you then, you know, have these, (laughs) all these threads that lead back many years, in fact. And so that sort of, I started out sort of organically as a small child being interested in sort of, you know, recycling and stuff. And now that's evolved into where I am, where I am now related to um, environmental and health topics. So it sounds like you're bringing together this intersection of nutrition, climate, health, equity, all looking at this bigger picture of how they all come together. And you talked about the scientific evidence. And I was wondering, there's scientific evidence on how a transition to a plant-based food system can prevent and treat chronic disease. And this has been increasing over the past number of years. However, there still remains controversies and uncertainties, especially among various groups. So I was wondering if you could delve into this a little bit, maybe from like a higher perspective or from your perspective, what chronic diseases have convincing evidence supporting the transition to a plant-based food system? And where do you think the greatest gaps in our knowledge currently exist that could have a big impact? I feel that there's controversy. There's controversy in terms of sort of the idea that meat and dairy provide nutrition that can't be obtained from plants. And so what I try to focus on is things that we need. So we need to have protein, for example, we need to have calcium, we need to have zinc, and emphasizing how we can get those things from plant-based foods, um, both for health, you know, so when you get something from a plant-based source, usually there's less saturated fat, there's less cholesterol, and those are beneficial. And then critically, there's usually more fiber. You know, it's estimated um, by Health Canada that 97% of Canadians don't get enough fiber. And we know that fiber, and there's lots of data supporting the effect of fiber on um, helping to um, reduce blood sugar, for example, that we'd see in diabetes, helping to increase satiety to prevent overeating of high saturated fatty foods, how fiber helps to bind, you know, there's this whole idea of detoxifying the body with, you know, different products that you can buy, but fiber is a great detoxifier. It helps to uh, bind to quote unquote toxins and, and be excreted from your body. You know, so fiber is well known to be something that is so healthy and yet so many people don't get it. And people seem to be more focused on protein, for example, um, and worrying about their protein intake, where there's no evidence that Canadians aren't getting enough protein. You know, in fact, there are some studies suggesting that maybe we're getting too much, but when we, no one is concerned about their fiber intake, you know? So I think that that is one gap in our nutritional knowledge. Number one is 
not recognizing that the things that we get from meat and dairy can be obtained through plants. We just need to have a well, well-planned plant-based diet. Um, and that would have myriad benefits beyond that because you would be getting the fiber and then there would also be the climate benefits um, as well. Where else I would say the research is quite clear um, besides fiber is just the the fact that there's less saturated fat in most plant foods, you know, the whole foods, I should say, there's a distinction between being plant foods and being whole plant foods. Um, So if you're eating a diet that's higher in um, whole plant foods, you're going to be getting less saturated fat, which we know leads to atherosclerosis, which is a risk factor for heart disease and stroke, um, as well as diabetes. And you're going to be getting less dietary cholesterol. And so I think the evidence that we have for those particular, those metabolic diseases, which encompass um, that they're within the top four, I believe, of the top reasons for Canadians to have mortality and morbidity, we're addressing like a huge health crisis, really. And, you know, even if we are able to shift those numbers even down by 10%, by increasing the plant, the whole plant foods in someone's diet um, at a population level, we're having huge benefits for people's health and their quality of life. Also having the benefit of reducing access to the healthcare system. So making it easier for people to access the healthcare system for things that aren't related necessarily to chronic disease, lowering wait times to see your family doctor or get into the emergency room. And then also reducing all of the greenhouse gases, all of the waste, all of the plastic, all of the medications, all of the stuff that goes into medical care. If we can reduce medical care by transitioning our diet, then we're we're eliminating so many other streams of potential waste and environmental pollution. So I just see that, you know, again, that idea of pulling one little thread and having all of these positive knock-on effects. I see that so clearly, and I wish that more people did. That really ties in with, in one of the reports, Uh, with one of the associations that you're involved with, which we'll get into in a little bit, there was this quote that said that a study by researchers at the University of Alberta estimates the cost of not meeting the food guide recommendations, which includes a more plant-based dietary focus, to be $13.8 billion annually. And that's $1.5 billion billion with a B in direct health care and 8.7 8.7 billion in lost productivity. Now, you had mentioned the Canada's Food Guide before and talking about cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, especially fiber intake. The recent or semi recent, the 2019, Canada recommends that at least 75% of our diet comes from plants, including protein foods. As you had mentioned, that 70% of Canadians haven't actually adopted Health Canada's recommendations, and that statistic joins another, which is that 40% of Canadians believe eating more fresh fruits and vegetables is beyond their financial means. And you talked about accessibility and affordability. So these underlying issues, which are part of food security, among other potential social determinants of health, are concerns that you have also previously given voice to in discussions of health and the prevention of of chronic diseases. How do you think the recent increases in food prices are and will impact health and climate issues, especially within the Canadian population? It's really tough right now. It's tough for everyone. You know, I hear all the time from patients that things are just really expensive and it's not even just food. It's everything. It's housing. You know, people are struggling to find rental homes. Um, 
just everything is people who drive are having trouble um, paying for gas and stuff. So, so food is definitely, you know, sort of looms large there and food banks are, are having record numbers of people accessing their services and, and reports from several food banks in Toronto, at least say that many of the people accessing their services have jobs, you know, so it's suggesting that the cost of living is going beyond, you know, people who have full-time jobs, you know, so certainly it is a consideration. I do think that, I do think that it's possible to eat a whole foods plant-based diet on a budget. You know, there's a, there's a lot of bulk food stores in Toronto. Um, you know, a lot of them fairly accessible. There's one that I go to that's on the subway line in the east side of Toronto. And I find that buying in bulk can be really helpful because number one, you're getting away from all the packaging, but two, you're also reducing food waste. You're buying exactly how much you need. And when you are buying, you know, let's say some kidney beans, which are high in fiber, low in cholesterol, low in fat, high in protein, relatively, you're able to buy, say, you know, enough to feed a family of four for one week, maybe like a pound or so. Um, and it might only end up costing you like six or seven dollars, you know, like they, they it's costed per by weight. So I think it's not convenient, though, <laughs> you know, our habits are, you know, at this time, not necessarily set up to, um, you know, have to soak beans and then, you know, um, stew them, prepare them in whatever way. But I do think that it is possible to, to do a whole food plant-based diet on a budget and save money in that way. I think our society needs to shift in that direction, you know, less towards convenience and more towards quality and sort of a slower pace in general, like a less stressful pace, because like what we're doing, like the convenience is having sort of a negative knock on effect downstream, you know, it's convenient right now to just quickly drive through and grab something that's usually processed that doesn't have fiber in it when processing removes the fiber purposefully. But then you end up having, you know, having chronic diseases, and then your time is sucked by visiting doctors or maybe even going into the hospital or requiring surgeries. And, you know, in my work, I see people who've had years of, you know, of poorly controlled diabetes or peripheral vascular disease. And I can see how many times they visited their doctor. I can see how many times they've been admitted to hospital. Their whole life goes on paused when you're in a hospital, you know, you, you're, you feel you know, like uh, disempowered in the hospital, like things just happen to you. You don't feel like you're in charge. It can be quite traumatizing, distressing for people. Sometimes they're in the hospital for months. And then when they're done the hospital, they go to a rehab facility. And so, you know, in the moment, the decisions that we make can be convenient. It can be uh, a habit. It can be an association developed in childhood with, you know, comfort foods. There can be many reasons why we make choices about what we eat in the moment. Um, but I hope, you know, that we're able as a society to move towards um, placing more emphasis on, on, like I said, the quality and, and trying to develop new habits around food, um, where we take our time to make it, um, we try to source fresh ingredients, and, and we take our time to sit down and eat it. And it's not something that we're just grabbing and eating in our car as we like rush off somewhere. You know, that is my hope. In terms of like, you know, the way inflation is going, I think we all just need to be a bit more creative. Like, you know, everyone is sort of trimming back 
on their grocery bill. I'm hearing people saying, hey, I don't think I can afford to buy um, fresh fruits anymore from the grocery store um, because of the price of fruit. But you know, there's there's other ways. For example, there's a there are community gardens. There's a there's a group in Toronto in particular that has a community garden located in the Flemington Park area, and they are growing to support their local community. And they've even had programs um, where they've linked with local health professionals, and health professionals have given prescriptions for fresh produce. So they've been able to deliver that deliver that locally grown fresh produce to their to their members. Um, so I think community gardens are a great, great way to address this issue as well. It provides an element of food security where when you have land in your community that can be used to grow food and you have the skills and the knowledge of how to grow food that is insulates you against things like these, this inflation that we're seeing. Um, and it also insulates us all in a way against, you know, droughts and famines and things like that, that are becoming more common in other parts of the world where food is typically grown or war, for example, like Ukraine um, would supply a lot of grain to the world, but now they're not able to, um, and that could drive up the price of grain. But if we were able to have more foods grown here in the city or in this province, that insulates us in a way against those types of global fluctuations in terms of price. I also think that you know, more public health, like the Canada Food Guide is amazing. I know about it, you know, but a lot of people that I speak to don't know about it, you know, so I wish that Health Canada, when they published it, which was great, it was the first time, based on my understanding that the meat and dairy industry were not, um, did not have a say in how the guide unfurled. And it was based strictly on evidence, which was amazing to see. I wish they had done more promotion of this guide. So more people know that this is the gold standard that we're recommending. You know, and even if we can't attain that right now, we know what we're striving for. And once government sets a bar for health, then it's on them and it's incumbent on them to help facilitate access, you know, by by saying that this is what we need for the health of Canadians and making that sort of a statement and promoting that idea um, through public health messaging. Um, then things like subsidies for plant-based foods or subsidies for farmers that grow plant-based foods, like but then that opens the door for those, we know where we need to go. Now, what are the policies that we need in place to help us get there, you know? And the more farmers can benefit from growing more plant-based foods, the more they're going to want to do it, you know? And then the, and that kind of creates a supply and demand element to things. So, and then once we do that and we have local um, capacity, then we can have lower prices. So it's all like every part of this scenario like links back to itself. And it's almost hard to talk about because you can go down so many different tangents because everything has like this, it's all, it all, it's all interconnected. It all fits together in the bigger picture. Yes. There's so many different interconnected aspects playing a role in this. And you mentioned two key areas that stood out to me, the policy level, and then at the individual level. And I was wondering, based on your experience and your practices, how do you start those conversations about incorporating these change in habits to go to the bulk food stores or to soak your beans versus getting some other type of food. How do you start that conversation? And how do you know when somebody's ready to start that conversation as well? Fortunately, or unfortunately, I'm not sure. Um, the patients that I have are at the end stages of their disease. So usually they're quite open. You know, it's heartbreaking to see 
that many of them have never even heard about a link between their chronic illness and how their diet plays a role in that. Um, and so, for example, if I have a person who's recently had to have one leg amputated, they're really motivated to try to save the other leg because their quality of life goes down so much more if both legs end up needing to be amputated, which does happen. So, so from that perspective, I find, you know, patients, once they're at that level, you know, I, I'm, I'm a physician, so I, you know, I want to practice evidence-based medicine. So I'm talking to them about the medications that they need to be on to help make sure their blood flow is optimized and that their blood sugars are optimized. But part of medicine is talking about food. And so I always make sure I have a picture of the Canada food guide on my phone. I go over it with them. I explain to them what it means. I explain to them why, why and how, you know, increased fiber, um, increased phytonutrients, increased plant-based antioxidants. I explain to them how those things can help them keep their various markers um, in an optimal range, which will, you know, enhance the chance of them sort of getting great control of the underlying diseases, or maybe even improving the underlying disease. And in some cases, for example, I've had patients um, who've been able to have their hemoglobin A1C be in the diabetic range, go down to the non-diabetic range, you know, so it can be depending on the person and, you know, depending on their circumstances, um, there can be great gains made um, by making these dietary changes. And, and I've been fortunate or not fortunate. Again, it's like that duality to have, to have people here who are really um, motivated. For example, I remember one patient initially was like, oh no, I never eat vegetables. I hate vegetables. I only like to eat meat and potatoes. And so I said, well, I can understand that, you know, that's how you grew up. You know, you associate those meals with great times in your life, maybe Christmas time, or maybe time hanging out with your family. And it, and it, those habits started at a time before we had this information, you know what I mean? Like those habits were embedded before we now learned how, how much uh, fiber is so important and how those foods don't actually provide that for us. Um, and then, you know what, he's like, you know what, you know, after talking to you a couple times, I'm interested to maybe try like one recipe. So I was able to give him a recipe for roasted Brussels sprouts, which are one of my favorites. And he, I don't know if he made it, <laughs> but he took the recipe. He went home and hopefully, hopefully he went ahead and tried, you know, so sometimes it's just opening that door possibility. And, you know, I told him this is like a one pan, set it and forget it you know, and then it's going to be really good kind of recipe. And so that was a small success story that I always remember. It's always great to have those stories. And also just keeping in mind, you kept in mind the simplicity of making it easy for the individual to do and something that didn't seem potentially as daunting as maybe people think it could be. Um, now, Dr. Johnson, I understand that in, in addition to your hospital practice, you are also a member of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment Agri-Food Working Group. Now, before we get into your specific working group, can you tell us about the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment? And this is a bit of a mouthful, so I believe it's also referred to as CAPE. Is that yeah. correct? For instance, what is the mission of this association and does it have specific principles and values that guide the group's goals and actions? Yeah, so so CAPE is a group of physicians and other health professionals. It's no longer just about physicians, but that's how it started, who've come together to collaborate with 
organizations, both nationally and internationally, to try to build momentum and power to advocate for healthier environments and healthier ecosystems. So the idea is that by grouping um, efforts together, we can advocate strongly to enable health for all, both by advocating with governments, um, by running campaigns um, with, directed to the public, by conducting research, and by trying to garner media attention um, to key issues. And, and given that physicians do have a role in society where we try to be experts on health um, and and centering the patient um, and the health of the patient and populations in all of our activities. Our advocacy in the realm of climate in this area, we're hoping can be impactful. And so that that is the that is the sort of mission for CAPE. And then as a sub, sort of a subcommittee, I guess, the agri-food working group that I'm on is looking at the evidence and trying to collaborate with relevant stakeholders about the effect of agriculture on climate and agriculture on health and equity as well. How did you first get involved with this group and what has your involvement been like so far? So several years ago, I honestly can't even remember how I discovered Kate, but several years ago, um, I somehow discovered them. I honestly can't remember how, and then sent an email to learn how to become a member. And once I became a member, it was very easy. They were like, sure, you're in. Um, once I became a member, um, then we were part, initially there was sort of this uh, email chain discussion group where we would discuss climate related papers or initiatives and things like that. Um, and there would be fairly regular meetings where we would talk about how we want to allocate our resources and what um, sort of topical things like a new gas plant going up here, how do we respond to that or sort of, you know, issues like that. And then more and more Cape started out kind of small, I guess, just like everything. And now more and more people have been added. I'm honestly not sure how many, but I definitely feel like um, I now know that there's chapters in different um, provinces and there's enough momentum where CAPE was very instrumental in working with government on the 2019 uh, Canada Food Guide. I've heard the former uh, president of CAPE, Courtney Howard, she's been invited to speak as an expert on climate and health in many different forms, including on the CDC. So it, CAPE has uh, managed to increase its profile as experts related to climate and health. And so at one point, there was a call out for people in the um, on these sort of online discussion forums to say, hey, an area that we really want to start focusing on is um, agriculture. And is anyone, does anyone here have interest in this topic or feel like they have expertise in this topic? And if so, come on over to this other subcommittee where we can try to pull together projects to help explore this more and help sort of amplify what we know of the evidence of agriculture, climate and health. Are you able to speak about some of the projects or initiatives that you're currently working on or have recently worked on and share it with us? Yes, for sure. It's just sort of like tying in with what I've been talking about, um, you know, we've been trying to focus on education because we feel like that's an area that people, they really don't know all the evidence, like from The Lancet, from the BHJ, from Nature, from Science, from all these top journals. 
Um, everyone is in agreement that moving towards a plant-based food system will dramatically decrease greenhouse gas emissions. And it will do it given the properties of methane being much more potent than carbon dioxide. Reducing methane, which is you know, on par with fossil fuels in terms of the um, agriculture releases as much methane into the air as fossil fuels. Like depending on what country you're looking at, you know, sometimes one is a little higher than the other, but kind of overall methane is a, is a real problem from, from agriculture, particularly animal agriculture. Um, and so if we can sharply curtail methane emissions, methane emissions are so potent that they have a very strong on off element to, to warming. So if we can curtail methane emissions, that can actually buy us time where we can prevent the planet from warming above the 1.5 degrees while we're working in the background to reform the energy system. Because the carbon dioxide, let's say we stopped all fossil fuels right now, the way carbon dioxide works is it takes decades to warm and decades to dewarm, to cool. So we would still be hurtling towards this above 1.5 degrees of warming without having some sort of other thing happening. And the other thing happening, I strongly believe should be transitioning our food system because not only does animal agriculture release tons of methane, but it also causes a lot of uh, fresh water use. You know, like we know the Colorado River is drying up and that services millions of people in the, in the United States. Um, and the greatest draw on that river is animal agriculture. It also leads to ocean dead zones through effluent, I guess, like the poo and pee from the animals. Often that goes right into waterways. And that burst of nitrogen causes a lot of algae in the water to um, over proliferate. And it creates this mat on the surface of the water that prevents any light from getting in which means that the plants below cannot photosynthesize and create oxygen, which means that there's no oxygen in the water and everything dies. So it creates a dead zone. And then that dead zone kind of almost perpetuates itself. You know, um, it also animal agriculture is also the leading cause of deforestation. And the more that we remove forests, like ancient forests, not just like you know, new areas where we've planted trees, but a forest actually has an ecosystem that is not reproducible in a short time frame. So by deforesting these ancient forests, like the Amazon or like the BC old growth rainforest, we're, we're actually doing irreparable damage to the climate and the ability of these forests to draw down carbon. The best like carbon drawdown Technology is conservation of existing forests, not trying to suck it out of the air and put it in the ground. You know, so animal agriculture is more than just greenhouse gas emissions. There are so many downstream effects from it that it's one of those things where if we can address that, and also there's the health issue, you know, and then the healthcare use issue. So if we, if we can address that, we will make so many gains in our fight to prevent climate collapse. This brings to mind a lot of the discussions that I've read in regards to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And even on the Cape website, there was this striking statement that said that if Canada meets its climate targets, we will save an estimated 112,000 lives between 2030 and 2050 due to air quality improvements alone. So this, to me, it seems to really tie in with what you're saying, like there's all these different areas that action is potentially still needed, it sounds like. And there's things that are still occurring that are leading to potentially outcomes that may have more harm than benefit, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was wondering if you could speak to in the proposed recommendations from Kate for amendments to Bill C-12, which is the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. So in it, it's stating that there's some specific actionable things that are needed in order to address these. And you talked briefly about these, but one of them that was mentioned was that it's what gets measured, gets managed. And I was wondering if you could speak about this in terms of climate accountability and what research is currently available in regards to this and what is being measured and what still needs to be measured to aid in moving forward. I think we need improvements across the board, honestly, in how we measure the effect of our food system on like the greenhouse gases. And I think there's so many, it's like, this is a nebulous question. I would say there is relative agreement that it's like between 25 and 35% of emissions are attributed to the food system. But again, that doesn't include, you know, all the chronic diseases, you know what I mean? Like, so, and sometimes it doesn't even include deforestation or water use. So it's very nebulous and difficult to tease out. Um, And I wonder too, if it's been like that on purpose thus far, you know, so that's a hard one. That's a hard one to get a grip on. And I think we're still working on that. Sounds like there's a lot of questions and a lot of areas to still delve into. Yes. (laughs) And since Cape's foundation, though, just going back to the policy lens of things, a number of policy-related accomplishments have been noted on the website in collaboration with many partners as well in the environmental movement. Can you tell us a little bit about these? When it comes to these, I would say I haven't had much involvement. I think my, my involvement has been most recently with the agricultural food group. I find that CAPE um, has really been really strong with fossil fuels and those types of things. And they haven't really emphasized food. And I feel like um, it hasn't been emphasized because it's such a thorny issue on the outside. You know what I mean? It's almost like there's like hesitance to talk about it because people view it as a very personal thing. But I kind of feel like as physicians, we talk about personal things all the time. You know what I mean? So we have a unique position where we can say, like we we ask people about their sexual history as it's relevant to their symptoms that they're presenting with. You know, so if someone's presenting with symptoms that have relevance to um, what they're eating, and many do, I think that it's perfectly, I think it's practicing good medicine to address it. But I do feel that CAPE has been, a little bit, you know, everyone seems to be in agreement that fossil fuels are driving the climate crisis. You know what I mean? There doesn't seem to be much dissension on that. Even even if there's dissension on how we transition the energy system, people are like, no more fossil fuels. A lot of people don't seem to know that animal agriculture has such a huge role. Um, And so there can be resistance to talking about it as well. um, The animal agriculture industry in Canada is concentrated into the the power and the money is concentrated into the hands of very few players. And those players are seemingly quite powerful. They do a lot of lobbying of the government. And, you know, they've been successful up until 2019 with having interference into the Canada Food Guide. Um, As well, more recently, um, meat groups in Canada were able to influence Canada's recent labeling of foods, like giving foods like a 
health checker or something like that. I can't remember the exact terminology. Um, and they wanted to, um, or putting on the food that this isn't a healthy food and meat groups were successful in having them not apply those rules to ground beef, which is full of saturated fat and other, and there are myriad other issues. Um, and so it seems like they kind of have outsize, um, there's outsize ability to like change the narrative. And so I think for that reason, CAPE hasn't been, they don't want to have controversy. They want to sort of be more positive and like garner more support, I guess. And so for me, I haven't been super involved in the things that CAPE's been doing with fossil fuels because I'm like, that is good. Like people know what's going on. Um, people are on board. I want to be part of the movement towards showing this other critical science that we're ignoring right now. And so um, that's why my involvement with CAPE has been like really actively, like I've been present and listening and whatever, but my actual like spearheading of activities has really started with the Agri-Food Working Group. And in addition to your work with CAPE, you are also a board director of the climate policy think tank, Canadians for Responsible Food Policy. How did you get involved with this group and what is its mission and values? Um, yes. So um, honestly, this just came from during the pandemic. Um, there was a little bit more time on my hands. <laughs> and so I was I was very motivated to find out how I can, you know, how can I help the most people? How can I do the most for the climate? How can I do the most um, for the health of Canadians? And for me, that is on a grand scale, like, of course, I work one on one with people, and that is extremely valuable and rewarding. But on a grand scale, trying to stimulate food, food policy change. And so um, I came across this group, um, just in my, you know, because my social media is mostly related to these topics, like ecology, um, animal agriculture, uh, climate, equity, those types of things. So one of the groups that I was following, um, I found very compelling. This was the Canadians for Responsible Food Policy. And um, I found them to be quite evidence-based. I really found myself going back to that page if I wanted to um, get some concrete data on something. You know, they're really good and meticulous about um, grounding statements and evidence and not being hyperbolic, which some, you know, some places can be. Um, and so I ultimately emailed them to say, hey, um, I have some free time. I'd like to help in any way that I can to um, amplify the work that you're doing, because I think it's very valuable and I think it's critically important right now. And um, they were sort of just getting started. It was a bit more of a, a sort of a grassroots effort at that time. But then over the course, this was just over a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, um, over the course of the last year to 18 months, um, they've sort of gained some momentum and become more organized and actually formed like an official board and invited me to be a part of the board, um, which has been great. Um, and really that's the thing. So we've been working on getting research grants to um, help shape policy, basically. We wanna amass more um, pilot studies, like for example, a pilot study of um, getting more plant-based foods on hospital menus and then seeing what patients think about it, seeing how that's affected the hospital budget, um, seeing, seeing how 
um, easy it was to do? What were the um, barriers? What were the successes? And then using that, the results of that pilot study to perhaps expand to other hospitals or to use that as a as a lever to talk to governments about why this is something that is feasible if we learn that it is feasible, something that's feasible, that's well-received if we learn that it's well-received, if it's cost-effective. So like kind of taking whatever learnings from that, hopefully they'll be positive. We anticipate they will be, but we don't know. We'll have to see. Um, and sort of doing things like that. So trying to get grants so that we can start getting strong data points that that we can then use if, if it, you know, if the results support we can then use to speak to government and we've made we've been making connections with um members of parliament um and and just trying to amplify as well um the canada food guide and how it can how the implementation of the canada food guide in different public realms like public institutions will as you alluded will lead to enormous cost savings which will only benefit both government and and society you know so really trying to write large those possibilities. Power of making connections. It sounded like both with this organization as well as with Kate that was sending an email and then from there also connecting with other individuals to reach out and see what can be done. Absolutely. That is honestly, it is, and it's also really energizing, you know, when you're in a group of people and we're all working towards the same goal and we're bringing you know, hey, this paper from Nature just got published. Hey, check out this Lancet paper. Like it's, it creates this momentum and this hope, you know, and when we're dealing with what is an existential crisis for all life on earth, you know, it can be easy to fall into a doom loop, you know, but I find that this work has shown all the possibilities of how, you know, humans in the past, we we came together about the hole in the ozone layer and we closed that hole and that was a global effort, you know? And so if we are equipped with the right knowledge and we are equipped with a roadmap of how to, how to come together and make change, we do it. We, you know, humans want to thrive in on a healthy planet. Um, we just need to be given um, the right information about how to do it. And so the work that I'm doing with these groups has shown me that we we do have that roadmap. We just now need to amplify it and make sure that we, you know, we are all working together from the same playbook and we can, we can, we can do this. A very empowering message. And along the lines of connections, where can people find out more about you and your work? So I would say I would like to put Canadians for Responsible Food Policy and CAPE. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for your time today. Before we close off, can you tell us what is your take home message or final thoughts that you would like listeners to leave this episode with? My take home message is that there is a lot we all can do, both individually and as a society, to reverse this climate catastrophe that's in progress, and also to uplift each other in our communities, to have increased food security, um, to have increased health, um, and, to, and to reverse inequities and in access to healthy foods. All we need is to remain hopeful, remain optimistic, and keep and keep working together. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Tila Johnson, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting the show. You can do this by clicking on the link at the bottom of the show notes and liking this episode. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time!